Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We turn to Luke chapter 21. We pick up at verse 5 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Be seated. When you begin preaching through one of the Gospels, you know that this passage stands near the end of the book. And you have to preach this text. And so you have to determine what you actually believe this text applies to. And so I've done so, and I've come to convictions on this. So this is where we start. The first century historian Josephus Flavius, who himself was a Jew, he led a revolt against the Romans, but then surrendered in one favor from the emperor. He describes the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans in this way, and this is from History of the Jewish War. Here's how he describes what is described in our text. The rebels shortly after attacked the Romans again, and a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers without awaiting any orders and with no dread of so monstrous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force, snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbing on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a low golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. As the flames shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength. For the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their eyes. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions. For passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled down by their companions. Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as as the defeated. As they drew closer to the temple, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The rebels were powerless to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood 
flowed down the temple steps and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals and looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute in our own. As the flames had not yet penetrated to the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure. He ran out, and by personal appeals, he endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire, instructing Liberalius, a centurion of his bodyguard, to club any of the men who disobeyed his orders. But their respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion's staff who was trying to check them were overpowered by their rage their detestation of the Jews, and an utterly uncontrolled lust for battle. Most of them were spurred on, moreover, by the expectation of loot, convinced that the interior was full of money and dazzled by observing that everything around them was made of gold. But they were forestalled by one of those who had entered into the building and who, when Caesar dashed out to restrain the troops, pushed a firebrand in the darkness into the hinges of the gate. Then, when the flames suddenly shot up from the interior, Caesar and his generals withdrew, and no one was left to prevent those outside from kindling the blaze. Thus, in defiance of Caesar's wishes, the temple was set on fire. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for any age and no regard accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be on fire. And the noise. Nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of the Roman legions as they swept onwards en masse. The yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword. The panic of the people who cut off above fled into the arms of the enemy and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below. And now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din. But more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The temple mount everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base. Yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased fugitives. 
Thus, Josephus' first-hand account of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That temple, for ages, the centerpiece of Israel's worship was begun by Herod the Great just 19 years before, the, before Christ was born. And it was not completed till just a couple years before A.D. 70. It was an unbelievably incredible structure. As, as is reflected even in the 19 years of construction that we read of in the Gospels, right? The apostles were constantly talking about how glorious it was. Even in this passage, they were talking about it talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. The apostles elsewhere said, Behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Again, Josephus said of it, The exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eyes. The exterior being covered on every side with massive plates of gold. The sun had no sooner risen Then it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. The reason being that whatever was not overlain with gold was purest white. And so, in AD 70 which is the culmination of the Roman siege against Jerusalem and against the Jews, that glorious structure that had become a robber's den, that had become a desecration to the name of God, even the one who had ordered it to be constructed, was as Jesus said it would be, There was not left one stone upon another that wasn't torn down. The generation who had seen Jesus, the generation of those who had witnessed his miracles and who had heard him preach in his presence, the generation of those who had spoken to the men and women that he had healed, they finally witnessed this destruction of the temple. And in our position as worshipers of God on this side of the cross, we know the destruction of this temple to correspond to the ending of all sacrifices in the one final sacrifice of the Son of God. There's no need for the temple anymore. Hebrews 9, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, Now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ's sacrifice accompanied by the rending of that veil in the temple. Was that sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And as part of 
of his departing words, Jesus tells the people what is going to happen to the old way, to the old sacrificial system and center. It will be destroyed in a dazzling manner. But what mercy, right? What mercy that prior to the destruction of the temple, the temple of Christ's body was raised in three days. Seated to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, just hours before that resurrection, that's this passage, it's hours before his death and resurrection told them that these gruesome days of judgment were coming and that they were imminent. The old was passing away and better things had come, but the passing of the old would come with the display of God's judgment. The culmination of the Jews' rebellion against God after all the warnings of the prophets, those vehement warnings like Jeremiah offered to the people, came with the crucifixion of his son. And that generation that crucified Christ would suffer God's judgment and witness the utter destruction of the thing that they were trusting in rather than in Christ, that temple. That's the mercy of God. And said by Josephus that 1.1 million people died over the years of the siege. The bloodshed, the destruction, the horror of that time cannot be exaggerated. The intensity of Jesus' sermon does do justice to what occurred in AD 70. This was the end of the ages and the beginning of the end times. Now, What question is Jesus answering? The apostles ask him a question. He says that the temple will be torn down, and then the apostles ask him, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? He says the temple will be destroyed. They ask him, when's it going to happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? In other words, they want to know when it's going to happen, And what signs will indicate it's happening? What circumstances will show this is about to happen? His answer then is this. And he begins with things that will not indicate the destruction of the temple is coming. It will not be when false messiahs come along. It's not going to be when false messiahs come along. That happens all through this age. All through this generation, false messiahs are rising up. All through every age, there have been false messiahs that have come along. It will not be when there are rumors of war swirling. In other other words, I believe he's saying, don't get, get misled by these things. And indeed, those things were common, even as they are today. Watch the news and see what kind of saviors are offered to you. Remember President Obama's first election. He was called the Messiah. 
and think of the constant threat of wars by the powers that be. And so what's happening in this first generation? And then beginning in verse 21, we receive Jesus' prophecy of the events surrounding the end of the temple. Wars, earthquakes, plagues, famines, terrors, signs from heaven, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, persecution, great distress upon the land, deaths by sword, dispersion, Jews trampled by Gentiles. And it sounds like I'm going back to Josephus' description of the destruction of the temple. And clearly, those things, clearly, without any difficulty in my mind, are fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. Now, the editorial heading in my Bible designates a shift in focus starting at verse 25, as it probably does in yours. I have the heading, The Return of Christ, right before verse 25, which means that those who added the editorial heading believe that Jesus is moving from talking about AD 70 to talking about the final judgment, the very last day, the day of his return, which we read about in the end of the book of Revelation. Now, is this correct? The difficulty with this view, that there is a shift in focus, is verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. And generation there really is this generation. In verse 36, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are about to take place. Taking both of those verses as true predictions because they are from the mouth of Jesus and therefore must be truth. He is telling those people gathered around him on that day that what he has said is about to take place and will happen during the lives of that generation in the next 40 years. What's difficult about that understanding? Well, a few things. It seems that what Jesus is describing here is worldwide. On the earth, dismay among the nations, verse 25. And the things which are coming upon the world, verse 26, not just local to Jerusalem and Israel. It it also seems that the events taking place are cataclysmic. What with signs in the sun and moon and stars and the powers of the heavens being shaken. And then verse 27 is perhaps the most difficult. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And what does that verse remind us of? Well, it reminds us of Acts chapter 1, where we read this. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom into Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witness, my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, And even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him. A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. 
on a cloud. Add to that the description found in 1 Thessalonians 4 of the return of Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so, and so we read in Luke 21 about Jesus coming in a cloud with great power and glory and that these things will take place during that generation. And we're left honestly scratching our heads. Look at verse 31 also. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. There's both of these elements seemingly tucked up against one another. Those there seeing these things happening and the coming of the kingdom of God approaching, which seems to be talking about the final consummation because, as I've said before, Jesus has already taught that the kingdom of God is at hand. At present. And all that is left is the final consummation. So, you're scratching your head now like I am. Some solutions that have been proposed. One, some say Jesus is is going back and forth. He's going back and forth between describing AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and his final return on the great day of judgment. That's not a satisfying solution to me because it does not address the apostles' original question in Luke, which had to do with the destruction of the temple, and it does not take seriously Jesus' statement that these things would take place during that generation. But it has this going for it. When we speak of little judgments, we should always be remembering the big one. AD 70 was, in fact, not such a little judgment, it, it being the end of an era and the beginning of a new one, but it is certainly little, tiny, when compared to the great day of judgment. So as Jesus is, is talking of the trials about to take place according to his understanding of the passage, according to this understanding of the passage, he's using that as an opportunity then to warn all men in every place about the judgment that's coming. But again, that's to go beyond the question asked of him, and it is to ignore the statements in the passage that these things would happen during that generation. Uh, Calvin goes this way. He says, No particular time is here fixed, as if the last day were to follow in immediate succession those events which were just now foretold. For the believers long ago experienced the fulfillment of those predictions which we have now examined, and yet Christ did not immediately appear. But Christ had no other design than to restrain the apostles who were disposed to fly with excessive eagerness to the possession of the heavenly glory and to show them the necessity of patience. As if he had said that redemption was not so close at hand as they had imagined it, but that they must pass through long windings. He's preparing them and those beyond. Now, two... Others say what Jesus is describing here in this passage is not about his second coming at all, 
but is limited to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. What I like about that solution is this. It is an answer to the apostles' question and has internal coherence. It's focused. Uh, The question is asked, Jesus answers and concludes by saying that these things were about to take place. All of it coheres, the whole rest of what Jesus says. The problem with this view, though, is verse 27. I can get around verses 25 and 26. As this, you know, particular area being described as the whole world. Right? I can get it. I can, I can get that. That's what we experience when we experience local cataclysms. And indeed, Scripture often uses the world as a subset of the whole, right? As a, as a portion of the whole. But what of verse 27? Could Jesus be prophesying what was to take place in AD 70 as him coming in a cloud with power and great glory? And indeed, all that being seen, being visible, as it says in verse 27. Stick with me. I'm working. I worked through it. You guys got to work through it too. Okay, stick with me. I'm going to quote someone else. An explanation on this side of things from our neighbor Ken Gentry. He says this, Beyond these spiritual comings, in addition to the bodily second advent, there's another sort of coming. This is the providential coming of Christ in historical judgments upon men. In the Old Testament, clouds are frequently employed as symbols of divine wrath and judgment. Often God is seen surrounding with foreboding clouds, which express his unapproachable holiness and righteousness. Thus, God is poetically portrayed in certain judgment scenes as coming in the clouds to wreak historical vengeance upon his enemies. For example, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Isaiah 19.1. This occurred in the Old Testament era when the Assyrian king Esarhaddon conquered Egypt in 671 BC. Obviously, it is not to be understood as a literal riding upon a cloud, any more so than Psalm 68 4. Sing to the God, sing praises to a name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah, and rejoice before him. Gentry goes on. The New Testament picks up this apocalyptic judgment imagery when it speaks of Christ coming in the clouds of judgment during history. Matthew 26, 64, for instance, must be understood as some sort of first century coming to judge. Christ says this will be witnessed by his accusers in the Sanhedrin. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says that to the Sanhedrin. According to Matthew 24, 30, the Jews of this generation would see a sign that the Son of Man was in heaven. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The sign of the Son of Man is in heaven was the smoking rubble of Jerusalem, which he had prophesied beforehand. God's judgments on Israel is taught in parabolic form in Matthew 21:40 there the lord asks therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to these vine dressers 
The interpretation is evident even to many premillennialists. That's funny if you're following and know who Ken Gentry is. Henry Alford, for instance, makes the following important observation. We may observe that our Lord makes when the Lord comes coincide with the destruction of Jerusalem, which is incontestably the overthrow of the wicked husbandmen. This passage, therefore, forms an important key to our Lord's prophecies and a decisive justification for those who, like myself, firmly hold the coming of the Lord is in many places to be identified primarily with that overthrow. All right. Take a deep breath. Refocus yourself. If you have your Bible closed, shame on you. So I lean toward the latter. believing that these prophecies of Jesus were fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, I had to go through this passage in this matter, in this manner. I mean, there are confusing verses. I've made that clear to you. It does seem to go, be going back and forth. If we conclude that all these things apply to the future, ignoring the text about this generation, though, then what does this passage do? What does this passage do? It causes us to go all dispensational and be fearful and to begin looking at every sign as a potential for this or that. We begin looking for signs, interpreting history and making predictions about Jesus' return. But if this passage does not apply to Jesus' return, well, then all of that is a fool's errand. It has happened... Be sobered about something which is persecution. Okay, so that's all I've got for you on that. I perhaps have left some questions. Examine this passage. Come to conclusions on it. Correct me where I'm wrong, okay? Um, but I want to make some... I'm not here to, to, to a lecture. I'm here to preach. So some applications of this text. Some applications of what Jesus says here and how he takes on the apostles in their question. The first thing is this. Don't be dazzled by buildings. Don't ever be dazzled by buildings. Be dazzled by Jesus Christ himself. Okay? It would have been offensive to the Jews to say this about their precious temple. Right? Indeed, think about it. It was, it was as testimony concerning his words here that led to Jesus' execution. They didn't like the temple being talked about in this manner. As Jesus, your treasure is some peripheral, more your treasure. Right? Are you dazzled by the buildings, forgetting about the sacrifice? Suffering and persecution is part of following Jesus Christ. Many will hate you because you love Jesus. Learn from Jesus' words here that times of persecution are for a purpose. Verse 13, they are an opportunity for your testimony. All persecution is an opportunity for your testimony. Do you realize that? They're not an opportunity for you to pray that God would take them away. They're an opportunity for you to persevere and testify to the goodness of God even in the midst of persecution. Three, persecution often comes from family members. Verse 16, you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. When persecution comes to the church here, 
It will be those closest to you who denounce you first. Because they will want to avoid the heat that you're suffering. Fourth, God will protect you in and through persecution. Verses 18 to 19. Not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance, but by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Given what happened in Jerusalem, what a powerful, what a wonderful, what a peacemaking promise that was to the apostles, wasn't it? Fifth, when persecution comes, don't get depressed. Instead, be courageous. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Straighten up and lift up your heads. Because you know what? The worst thing they can do is kill the body. They can't touch your soul. Your redemption is drawing near. Death to the persecuted is redemption. Six, be on your guard, be on the alert, praying. When difficulties come, the temptation is to spend time and money on your pleasures, to meditate, or to medicate, not meditate, to medicate, to, to worry, right? That is to be unprepared for any kind of persecution, however big or however little. You have to be ready for persecution. You have to be on your guard. Seventh, in all things, remember that you will stand before the Son of God. There is indeed a judgment day coming. A judgment for all. And those who are godly have that judgment in mind all the time, every day. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That applies to all men. Final point. Look at verse 38. The desire of the people to hear from Jesus was so strong that they would get up early in the morning to come to hear him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Lord God, we thank you that, that nothing, nothing hinders you. That as you have determined, so it falls out. As Jesus prophesied here, so it has fallen out. Lord, what a, what a joy it is for us to know this, even as we know that it promised, promises to us a life of persecution if we desire to be godly. And so, Father, I pray that, that even, as we, even as we see the fulfillment of this passage, that we would remember its application, that we would be on guard, that we would be ready, that we would be uh, looking for, for the glorious return of Jesus. But but also knowing that we will stand before you at our deaths. Lord, we thank you that in that we will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we will have peace with you. 
We will be cleansed in that blood. We will be pure and holy and we will stand before you praising the name of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered sin and death. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.